Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may, we, we may hear your message of hope, challenge, and peace for us today. Amen. The Old Testament lesson is from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, which can be found on page 632 of the Pew Bible. In days to come, the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instructions and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. But about that day and hour no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away, so too will be coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep away, oh, keep awake therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not, ha would not let his house be broken into. There therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. This is the, Lord, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Max. We have, uh, for the second week in a row, a very apocalyptic scripture reading that talks about the end of the world. And I thought rather than preach the same sermon twice, I'd try and provide you with something a little different this morning. Uh, what we're going to do is start with a quiz for the art lovers in the room. And that is to see if you can identify who painted these famous pictures of Jesus. So here's the first one. We'll start you off easy. Yes, so that's The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. The next one, same era. That's The Transfiguration painted by... It's one of the Ninja Turtles. 
Raphael. Raphael. The next one is Christ. It looks just like every other portrait this guy did. Yes, Rembrandt. Well done. A little more contemporary. This is Yellow Christ. Yes. Well done, Helen. Gauguin. And then, of course, this is Christ of St. John of the Cross by... Salvador Dali. These are all well-known pictures of Christ, but um, you may be surprised to know the most popular picture of Christ was painted by an American. Here it is. Can anyone tell me when this was painted or who it was painted by? How many people recognize this and have seen it before? Oh, this is not the one I'm thinking of. This is a bonus. It's not on my quiz sheet. Here we go. <clears throat> Who's seen this before? A few of you. This painting has been reproduced over half a billion times, and it's called The Head of Christ by Warner Solomon. It's also called The Solomon Head. He painted this in 1940 for a Baptist publishing house who put it any and everywhere they could. And one of the places it gained uh, a lot of speed was that they printed these on uh, cards and gave them to every soldier heading out to war, and uh, for both uh, World War II and for Vietnam. To be, uh, their idea was you would have card-carrying Christians in the war fighting for the country. So everyone has their own ideas about what Jesus looked like and who Jesus is, and. I'm always interested to learn about the ways that popular art and literature have shaped our own theologies about Jesus and the ways we imagine him today in the 21st century. A professor at Emory University called Tom Long says, I have received hundreds of Christmas cards depicting baby Jesus in the manger, but I have never once received or sent a Christmas card depicting Jesus' second coming. So at this time of year, most of us come to church expecting to hear the familiar Christmas story about a baby in a manger. But that's not what we get in this morning's reading from Matthew. Matthew points us towards Jesus' second coming, reminding us that we can't look back at the birth of Jesus without also thinking about when Jesus will return and complete the work that God began. The infant Jesus is really a lot easier for us to embrace than Matthew's Jesus, who prompts people to faint with fear and trembling of judgment on the world. Matthew, though, is much more interested in the grown-up Jesus. Matthew wrote his gospel for a Jewish audience just one or two generations after Jesus' death. And at that time, most of Jesus' followers were expecting him to come back right away, any minute. Matthew's gospel is written with that in mind. It has what we call an apocalyptic orientation. So Matthew and his community believe that history is divided into two chunks. The first chunk is the present age, which is characterized by evil, idolatry, sin, injustice, and violence. He says the second age is the era of God's reign. He calls it the kingdom of God or heaven. And that era is characterized by peace, by virtue, by eternal life. And for Matthew and his community, the period between when Jesus came and when he comes back is an in-between time where that new era has started, but it's not yet fully arrived. 
And he says that era is characterized by conflict. And the people living in first century Israel certainly lived through that conflict. They saw Nero's persecution. They saw their temple torn down and burned in 70 AD. And it was very difficult for anyone living in Israel at that time to describe their life as normal or comfortable. They were desperate for something to change. And Jesus' return could not come soon enough for them. God's intervention was their only hope for justice to be restored. And scholars tell us that as more and more time passed without Jesus' return, some in Matthew's community were beginning to lose hope that this new age would ever come. So throughout his gospel, Matthew reminds his followers to hold strong, to stay steady. You must always be ready because not even the angels know when Christ is coming back. And then Jesus gives them four examples to emphasize this point. Max read these for us. He talks about people grinding meal, people working in the fields. And what's interesting about those examples is that it's people doing everyday things. Matthew isn't encouraging Christians to withdraw and shut their doors as they wait for the end of the world. He's encouraging them to be faithful right where they are, to notice the ways that God's kingdom is already beginning to break through here and now. Because for Matthew, God's kingdom is not a far-off place, a heaven in a distant corner of outer space. Heaven and the kingdom of God are right here on this earth that we live in presently. And Jesus' work to bring heaven into reality is firmly grounded in what we're doing here and now. But how are we meant to stay focused? That's the big question. How are we meant to notice God at work in our world? So last week we had an all-age service. It was a little lowbrow, and so I thought I'd hit you with some Aristotle this morning. Aristotle's book on ethics is called Nicomachean Ethics. Jonathan, did you read this at Pingree? No. So in this book, Aristotle talks about how you cultivate a good life. And for Aristotle, the good life is all about virtues. And the gist of Aristotle's argument is this, is that good virtue is the product of good habits. And that determines what sort of person you will be and what person you are today. The more successfully you cultivate good habits, the more closely your life will align to these virtues that he outlines. And I think I listed most of them up there. If he was alive today, I think Aristotle would look at professional athletes and the discipline they have training for their sport, that that's all they do and all they focus on. They train, they train, they train, so that when game day comes, they, their mind and body, know exactly what they want to do. And a lot of modern science and psychology has uh, emphasized this also. They talk about flow states. Have any of you read about this with swimmers and runners? They say that your body and mind are so trained and concentrated that when you're in competition, running a marathon or swimming long distances, that you get this laser focus and everything else disappears and you're just swimming through the water or running at your optimal performance rate almost unconsciously. Aristotle wants people to do the same thing with their everyday lives so that they have these virtues and these habits instilled like a muscle memory so that when a new situation or new problem arises, they know how to react almost without thinking because of the character that they've developed over time. Imagine if we did that for our faith. Now in his book on ethics, Aristotle writes this, we must not listen to those who advise us being men to think human thoughts, but must put on immortality as much as possible 
and strain every nerve to live according to that best part of us, which surpasses all else. Who does that sound a lot like? St. Paul. Good answer. <laughs> In his teaching, uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishability, and the mortal put on immortality. So I think Paul would have been familiar with these writings of Aristotle and maybe even intentionally alluded to it in his work. In his teaching, Jesus picks up on this same thread and he teaches his disciples to cultivate certain habits in their own lives. Their entire way of being is grounded in the word of God. And as Jesus' disciples, they aspire to be earthly ambassadors of a heavenly kingdom. At one point, at the end of his gospel, Jesus tells his followers, Whatever you do to the least of my followers, you do to me. When you feed the hungry, when you clothe the naked, when you visit the imprisoned, Jesus is encouraging his disciples to cultivate habits to help them live faithfully. If you get in the habit of doing these small things on a day-to-day -day basis, he's saying, when bigger challenges come up, you'll be more prepared to deal with them. And how do we get into the habit of noticing God? One way that we talked about doing that last week was gratitude. At Thanksgiving, most of us naturally pause and take stock of our lives to think about what we're most thankful for. And last week, I suggested we should all take time every day leading up to Christmas to do that, to either start a note in your phone or have a little journal by your bed where once a day you stop and think about what is one thing that I am thankful for today. It doesn't have to be a big thing like a promotion at work or your Christmas bonus coming in. It can be something small like the ice cream you got on your apple pie or that the children all behaved during the address this morning. Anything works. And more and more scientists are telling us that if you take time to practice this, to notice things that you're grateful for, you will actually train your brain to unconsciously notice those things on a day-to-day -day basis without thinking about it. It can affect your health physically and mentally. If you notice something is going well and bringing you joy, God is there. If you notice yourself engaged in something that gives you satisfaction and a sense of purpose, God is there. If you find hope in the midst of a bad or difficult situation, God is there. In the midst of our busy days, in the midst of our holiday shopping, even in the midst of our long, dark nights, God appears, promising to walk with us and to continue bringing hope and healing into this world until the day, as Isaiah says, when swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Until that day comes, we all watch and we wait and give thanks to God. Amen.